Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. 3 months into the war in Gaza and the conflict has reached a courtroom. Please be seated. The sitting is open. South Africa versus Israel. The International Court of Justice in The Hague. Gaza's health ministry run by Hamas say 23,000 people, 1% of the Gazan population have been killed. Is this genocide? Israel calls it preposterous. South Africa, bringing the case, say otherwise. The evidence of genocidal intent is not only chilling, it is also overwhelming and incontrovertible. If there have been acts that may be characterized as genocidal, then they have been perpetrated against Israel. The application and request should be dismissed for what they are, a libel. Do either side have a convincing case? What can the International Court of Justice even do? And could what's heard here change what's happening in the war? You're listening to Stories of Our Times. From The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm Luke Jones. Today, South Africa's genocide case against Israel explained. this one, we needed a top expert in international law, so we hopped on a line to Vienna. I'm Holger Hestermeyer. I'm a professor of international and EU law at the Diplomatic Academy in Vienna, and before that I was a professor of international and EU law at King's College London. Simple question to start with. What is genocide? Genocide is defined in the Genocide Convention. It consists of two elements. The first one is an atrocious act. There are a number of acts that qualify, for example, killing members of a group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a group, forcibly transferring children of a group. The second element, and the legally far more difficult to handle element, is you have to commit these acts with an intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. That's the definition contained in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. Yes, and so when you say group, then, interesting that you say an ethnic group, a nation. So if we're thinking about the the Israel-Gaza context, the Gazans 
how would they fall under this? They would be a part of a national slash ethnical group of the Palestinians. And where all of this is playing out and this argument is being had is in the International Court of Justice. Now, some people might be confusing it in their minds with the International Criminal Court. Can you just explain exactly what this court is, what its jurisdiction is? The International Criminal Court, they look at individual cases and they might hand out prison terms for individual crimes. The International Court of Justice is quite different It's an element of the United Nations. It's the highest international court in the land, if you want. And what it handles are cases brought by one state against another state. Only states can bring a case against another state. And have we had in this court a case of this scale and seeming importance before? This is not the first genocide case before the court. There have been cases in the context of the Yugoslavian wars. And it was also in the case of Srebrenica, the one case where the court has already held. There was not genocide because the genocide wasn't attributable to a state, but there was a failure to prevent genocide. And we have recently seen two other important genocide cases that were brought to the court. One was the case that the Gambia brought against Myanmar, alleging genocide. The other one was brought by Ukraine against Russia. And the allegation there is not that Ukraine charges that Russia is committing genocide, but Russia used genocide as an argument to wage war against Ukraine, claiming that Ukraine is committing genocide in the Donbass. And Ukraine Mm. says, you can't do that. That is an abuse of the Genocide Convention, And we are not committing genocide. And that was the reason that Ukraine could bring a case. And here, the situation is similar in its sort of dramatic effects. You might allege that Israel commits war crimes, but there is no jurisdiction for the ICJ for war crimes. There is jurisdiction under the Genocide Convention. And accordingly, the claim here is this stark one. Well, let's get into the meat of, of, the, of the dispute, which we're going to talk about. You mentioned that Israel and the case that South Africa has brought against it in the International Court of Justice. What are they alleging? What is South Africa's case? South Africa is alleging that Israel is failing to prevent genocide. They are alleging that Israel is committing genocide. They're alleging that Israel is conspiring to commit genocide Each day, yet more desperate people will be forced to relocate from where they are sheltering or will be bombed in places where they have been told to evacuate to. Entire multi-generational families will be obliterated and yet more Palestinian children will become WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, the terrible new acronym born out of Israel's genocidal assault on the Palestinian population in Gaza. There is an urgent need for provisional measures to prevent imminent, irreparable prejudice to the rights in issue in this case. There could not be a clearer or more compelling case. But also, and I think these are quite important, usually left out of the debate, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, complicity in genocide, failure to punish genocide. 
The Deputy Speaker of the Knesset, Israel's Parliament, has called for the erasure of the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. The Defense Force agrees. On 9 October, the Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, gave a situation update to the army, where he said that as Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza, there would be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything would be closed because Israel is fighting human animals. And then also failing to allow investigations concerning genocide by competent international bodies. So there are a number of allegations, but it's not only committing genocide that is alleged. Hmm. And why is it South Africa who's bringing this, of all countries? Legally, the question is, they are not alleging genocide against South Africans. So why can they even bring a case? But every single state party to the Genocide Convention can bring a case because, to some extent, genocide hurts us all and it's in the interest of all to uphold the convention. So that is the legal part. That, of course, leaves the factual part. Factually, states are usually quite hesitant Hmm. to bring cases against other states because they maintain their diplomatic relations and they're more interested in that and they think, why should we get involved in this? But here, South Africa, first of all, through its own history of apartheid, feels kinship and has actually close ties to Palestinians. Then there is also the split in international opinion, uh, whereas in a lot of Western northern countries, opinion tends to be more on the Israeli side, not wholly, of course, but the global south feels very strongly about what is going on and South Africa is positioning itself also as an advocate of the global south. Of course, in the, in the Ukraine case, they did not position themselves strongly in, on the side of Ukraine. That was far from the moral clarity that they now seem to invoke. So uh, yes. charges of hypocrisy are, are leveled by everyone against everyone. And I think this is part of the context of the discourse here as well. We'll get into the actual detail of it in a moment, but on the face of it then, this case being brought, how did Israel respond to that? Israel was, I think, abhorred by the case. I think the South African case is very sad because they basically decided to become Hamas's lawyer. This charge of genocide is totally preposterous. It's outrageous. So Israel also alleged that South Africa was taking the side of Hamas. South Africa, though, in its submission, explicitly condemned the terrorist attacks. I would have condemned them more strongly, of course, but they did explicitly condemn them. Mm. And so last week we had two days of hearings for this. Is that the entirety of what we'll see in terms of evidence presented in court? The case falls into two stages. You have the main case that is brought with the allegations of genocide, but Mm. the phase of the case we're in now is about provisional measures. And the hearing we heard was about that. To give an illustration of provisional measures, think you are in a dispute about a house. You want to rent the house, the landlord wants to tear it down. Now, if you go to court, you know that the court will take time with a main case about the dispute. If nothing happens in the meantime, the landlord will just tear the house down. So what you do is you get injunctive relief Mm. from the court saying, protect my rights right now, 
because otherwise they might become irrelevant. And this is the phase we're in here. And that changes both what South Africa has to show and what the court can do. The provisional measures phase is quite different from the main subject matter case that we will see play out in the next two, three, four, five years. Mm. So what South Africa has to prove now is to show that what they claim is plausible, just plausible. They have to show a risk of irreparable prejudice and urgency. And what evidence do they have to present to actually do that? This is where it becomes a little bit less clear because they don't have to show Mm. that Israel committed genocide, but they have to show that it's not implausible, that it's not an utterly absurd claim. And it's difficult to put a precise bar on how high the evidentiary burden is in this regard. But Mm. one of the key elements here is the specific intent. And here what we saw in terms of evidence was two things. South Africa showed the acts underlying genocide. And of course, there's an enormous amount of killing and suffering going on. So in terms of the acts, Mm. they showed a lot of acts. And then in terms of the specific intent, they also showed direct statements that were of a genocidal nature. How do you mean in that way? In the sense that, for example, you find a statement by a a commentator or a politician saying, we have to destroy Gaza. There are no more civilians. There was a video Mm. that was shown in court of soldiers dancing and singing, there are no more civilians. Sometimes it was really factually very, very difficult, and that concerned in particular a statement made by Netanyahu himself, who referred to, and I fear my biblical education is lacking in that respect, the Amalak, enemies of the Israeli people that must be destroyed. People of Israel, last night, additional ground forces from Israel entered Gaza. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember and we are fighting. And the question what that means, which becomes almost a question of biblical interpretation, but there were a whole number of genocidal statements, and Israel said, well, this is just you know a hodgepodge of statements of different people, some of them irrelevant because they're not in the chain of command, some of them contested, And the question is what the court will make of that. But note one important element of the case. This all all goes to genocide. The uh, disproving the evidence as such doesn't go to incitement to genocide or failure to prosecute incitement to genocide. And what we have already seen is Israel making, after the case was filed, stronger statements of saying incitement of genocide is illegal. That was something where the case arguably already had a rather clear effect in making sure that Israel complies with its obligation, because that's also an obligation under the Genocide Convention, to prosecute Mm. statements that incite and allowing an atmosphere to develop where people think they can say these things uh, without being punished. Mm. 
just to return you to Bible class, that what Benjamin Netanyahu said uh, ahead of the launch of the, of the Grand Offensive in Gaza was, remember what, what Amalek did to you, which is a reference to divine command from God for the retaliatory destruction of the Amalekites. Um, you mentioned the, the provisional measures that the court could impose if it buys largely, um, prima facie, what South Africa is saying it can put in some measures to protect the situation while it fully considers the case over, as you suggested, a number of years. What are those provisional measures that they could actually put in place? And how enforceable are they in the middle of a war? South Africa requested a whole number of provisional measures. I'm just going to go with the most important one which they put first. The state of Israel shall immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. Mm. So a complete stop to military operations. But what can the court do? The court can now look at the situation and say, what are the measures necessary to protect rights? And here comes another element of the Israeli case. Israel said, the case is to some extent turning the situation on the head. There are clear genocidal statements by Hamas, and we have the right to defend ourselves against Hamas. If we stop the military operation, they can rebuild and reposition themselves. So if the court decides to issue provisional measures, and I would suggest it is more likely than not that it will, but I would suggest it will take account of both of these rights. I think there will be a statement about military operations in general, and then there will be statements about things like letting in aid and ensuring the safety of, for example, medical staff of the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization mm. repeatedly wanted to access the, the territories and were not allowed in several times because they didn't receive assurances of safety. I think those eight demands, there seems to be a clear need to make certain that they can arrive where they're sorely needed. Interesting you described those provisional measures as as statements that the ICJ would make. I mean, is it the case that they would just call for these things and then Israel could press on as it was going to anyway and, and ignore them? The legal position is provisional measures are binding on the state. And if you breach provisional measures, that in itself is breaching international law. So that's the legal position. Of course, factually, look at the Russia and Ukraine case, the court in that case issued provisional measures saying that Russia has to stop all military operations against Ukraine. And that hasn't happened. So there is a yes. risk of measures being disregarded. Theoretically, this could then occupy the Security Council, but that usually is not very effective because there's a permanent member that will wield its veto power. So what will be the actual effects on mm. the ground? The order to grant assurances of safety for WHO staff traveling into Gaza, I expect that that would actually happen. But Israel has already issued a statement saying, we, we will defend ourselves no matter what. So in terms of stopping or suspending military operations, that would be different. But yeah. you can then expect an effect of the uh, decision of the court on allies of Israel that concerns the UK, for example, if there's provisional measures prohibiting some things, the UK would be under a lot of pressure to make sure that whatever it does cannot be understood 
as helping Israel go against the order. And the same applies mm -hmm. to France, the same applies to Germany. Uh, so even if you don't see immediate effects of these orders, that doesn't mean they have no effect. Coming up, day two of the hearings. What is Israel's case for the defence? That's just in a moment. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeeda Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence in its opening presentation yesterday, that broad commitment to humanity rang hollow. Indeed, the delegitimization of Israel sounded barely distinguishable from Hamas's own rejectionist rhetoric. Holger, you've taken us through, I guess, day one of the two-day hearings that we had in the International Court of Justice, South Africa's case. In terms of the day two, though, where we heard from Israel's lawyers and their defence, can you just take us deeper into that? What did they say to rebut what South Africa was, was putting out there? One of the main contentions of Israel is saying there is no genocidal intent here. Look at what's going on. We were attacked on October 7th. It is clear that the attack is against Israel, and I think that is uncontested by anyone. Hamas mm. has genocidal intent. So they say, if there is genocide in play, the risk of genocide is against us, and we have to defend ourselves here. The applicant has regrettably put before the court a profoundly distorted factual and legal picture. The entirety of its case hinges on a deliberately curated, decontextualized and manipulative description of the reality of current hostilities. Now, they had to deal with a number of issues. One is the multitude of genocidal statements. And they said, well, if you want to prove genocidal intent, look at how our command and how our military operations are organized. There are two bodies that are in charge of military operations. And you have to look at the orders they give. And the orders they give are abide by international law. How do you explain that video that was played in courts yesterday of Israeli soldiers singing about the fact that there were no innocent civilians. Question. And in every war, soldiers uh, may perform things for social media that have absolutely nothing to do with the declared goals of this war. And everyone at every level understands. But it revealed their, goal, their goals. That this goal, and, and again, you keep going back to this Amalek reference, refers to the destruction of Hamas. Yes, there have been 
some statements, but most of these statements are made by people who are not relevant. The shock, anxiety, and deep pain that have affected Israeli society since October 7th naturally lead to harsh statements regarding the enemy that is committed to, indeed driven by, destruction of Jews and Israelis. Or they have been vigorously opposed by people who are relevant. Israel then submitted a bunch of statements that go in the opposite directions from the statement submitted by South Africa. So basically their point there is, listen to what the actual commands are to our armed forces engaging in this conflict, not the political classes and commentators sounding off about this in public. To some, to some extent, uh, it was that. To, to other extent, they actually, so when it comes to the statements of Netanyahu, they had, of course, to oppose that statement because Netanyahu is part of the chain of command. They also made a statement concerning prosecution of people, but they said, well, if there are breaches of the laws of war, which we claim there aren't, but if there are breaches of the laws of war, then the, the Israeli judiciary, which is solid, will tackle them in due time which, of course, would be a statement that, that for South Africa would be difficult to swallow. But Israel largely relied on the fact that they have safeguards, that they do targeting exercises, and that they repeatedly made statements concerning the respect of the law. And how convincing did you find that case? I, I think we have to distinguish two. I'll start with the requirements of genocide. The bar for genocide is very, very high. But I think there would be two ways to show genocide. You could either go with showing a commander who has made genocidal statements and given orders that were followed on to commit the relevant acts. And then you say he's a commander, so actions of state officials are attributable to the state. That's the rule of general international law. But... Here, it's about an overall charge of state policy, which is really, really, really hard to make because of the way we look at genocide. If you don't have the genocidal plan in front of you, you have to show that the only inference, the only possible inference can be genocidal intent. And that is a high bar, I think, in terms of failure to prosecute genocidal statements. The South African case at the moment seems more convincing because there clearly are a lot of these genocidal statements going around and it's not good enough to say, well, the people are not that important or acted in the, the spur of the moment. To some extent, you have to show that, that your system actually tackles them and saying they, it will in due time is not sufficient. So I think mm. at the moment, it's a mixed case. And I can get my head around all of that and I can get my head around, as you were discussing earlier, why South Africa is bringing this case. Explain for me, though, why Germany and Namibia are also involved, it seems. So any state party to the Genocide Convention has a right to intervene in a case. You can just issue a statement and say, we as party to the Genocide Convention think Article 3 should be interpreted this way. Germany, of course, has a lot of interest in the Genocide Convention. Germany was the example of a state committing genocide. The Holocaust is the genocide that gave rise to the creation of the Convention. And from this historic responsibility, Germany says we have a particular responsibility to the Convention. 
In this case, they have announced that they will intervene on the side of Israel. Interestingly, the German population is quite split. 61% think Israel is going too far in Gaza. Now, Germany says this does not amount to genocide. But the global south, as I've pointed out with South Africa, feels equally strongly, only in the opposing way, saying, well, this is genocide. And Namibia, for a while, Germany was a colonizer of Namibia and committed genocide in that time. And so Namibia has now issued a very strong statement against the German intervention based on its historical experience. And this shows how the historical experience of countries comes in in the most diverse ways. And you've seen the German historical experience actually used in arguments on all sides of any debate. What exactly is the lesson from the past? There are clear moral imperatives on both sides. There are historical arguments on both sides. And you immediately get a polarization that is entirely unproductive. And in terms of the the Germany and Namibia angle, even though, as you say, there'll be lots of debate about what the lessons are from history, Berlin did acknowledge in the end, 2021, committing genocide in Namibia back in the sort of early part of the 20th century. Um, Holger, can you mark our diary for the weeks and maybe months and years ahead in terms of this case in the ICJ? In terms of the provisional interim measures, when will we see white smoke on that? We will have to wait a couple of weeks. My guess is that South Africa scrapes by on this one. There will be provisional measures, but there will not be an entire stop of all military operations. They will be drafted Mm. more carefully. That's my guess. Then expect a couple of years before we get full hearings and ultimately a full judgment. Don't expect a judgment on the whole case within the next two years. I think it will take longer than that, but it won't take five years either is my guess. And on that overall case, as you mentioned earlier, commissioning genocide and failure to prevent genocide seem like the two big ones. What would the eventual sanctions be if Israel was found to be guilty of those? I mean, mean, what is in the gift of, of the court to actually hand down? In most cases, what the court does is it issues a declaratory judgment. So it does not order anything specific. It says you have breached international law. Usually there's an obligation under international law if you've breached international law of restitution, compensation. So they might also spell out those things. There are no enforcement measures because there is no international institution that can come and, you know, seize money or something like that. So compliance in the end rests in the hand of the state that has to comply. But states usually do because the pressure building up the whole of international society means even states that are sometimes regarded as rogue states like Venezuela have complied because the alternative for them would have been far worse. Mm. It's interesting how even when we're talking about such awful crimes as genocide, the consequences seem quite flimsy. It's all based on reputation and an understanding that in a world based on, you know, a rules-based order that allies will will pressure that nation, that nation might feel shame, you know, consequences will flow as a result, but there's no actual hard justice. So is the court doing 
what those who set it up way back in, in 1945 expected of it. When the United Nations Charter was drafted, the drafters held up the hope that all states would over time submit to mandatory jurisdiction concerning all international law. That has not materialized, and that leads to these really, really harsh situations for justice in which now everything in this case is flowing through genocide, and there are a lot of horrendous things going on, but it all has to be framed as genocide, but it neglects possible other obligations. So, for example, cutting food and water supply under the laws of occupation, that is highly problematic, and I'm not, uh, there are so many facts and counterfacts that I don't know what precisely happened, but that is worthy of being looked at. Genocide makes that tough. So to that extent, the court is not doing what its drafters hoped. The, the drafters probably also held up the hope that the complete split of the international community, Cold War, would be overcome eventually and would be disappointed to see that we still have a polarized world society. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Professor Holger Hestemeyer from the Diplomatic Academy in Vienna. The producer today was James Shield, the executive producer was Fiona Leach, and sound design was by Mario Lasetto. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk if you've a question that needs answering or a compliment that needs graciously receiving. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.